Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, a, uh, another day, another mayoral candidate forum. This one at uh, Steinmetz High School. All nine candidates in attendance. And uh, you got the same sort of silliness to which you've become accustomed from Chicago politicians generally, from this group of nine specifically. Uh, public safety dominated. And what did they have to say? Well, back and forth about who funds and who defunds. That was essentially the gist of it, uh, The, with one exception, which we'll get to in a moment. But here's a good example of what I'm talking about. Uh, Triple Threat accuses uh, Brandon Johnson of being a police defunder, you know, because he is. Yeah. And this is, this is the comeback from Brandon Johnson. This is, again, for those not keeping score at home, this is the CTU-endorsed candidate, Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson. The defunder on the stage is actually Mayor Lori Lightfoot and Paul Vallis. They've defunded our public schools. They've defunded our mental health services. So, I mean, it's just, it, it, you just to say anything, but the, the, the defunded our pu- public schools. Oh, my gosh. CPS has so much money, they don't right. know what to do with it. Exactly. Um, but... Uh, this is the whole construct of the these discussions. And by the way, the moderators don't help any either. This no, was, was WGN this time. And it was so goofy because each candidate gets 60 seconds to answer the question. It, it ridiculousness. The, I, I didn't learn anything. And Brandon Johnson, all I learned is Brandon Johnson had a lot of hecklers there last night. Yeah, I saw that. Um, but everything is who is going to spend more money that, you know, grows on trees outside of City Hall. That's everything. Every problem is solved with, they don't say spend more money because it sounds profligate. They say investment. Oh, well, who yeah, could be yeah. against investing in our kids? Who could be inve- against investing in our neighborhoods, investing in our communities, investing in our businesses, investing in our future, investing in our city? Mayor Lightfoot, though, she did take the time to, uh, you know, jab at her challenger, well, her number one challenger, Chewy Garcia. You can't get there by taking money from a crypto king that's now indicted. You can't get there by um, taking, um, making transactional deals with the former indicted Speaker of the House. And you can't get there by taking money from corrupt red light camera um, companies like Congressman Garcia. And you can't get there, Mr. Vallis, by not respecting women and being silent on hedging on whether or not women have the right to bodily autonomy. That's how you get it done. You stand up, you're a leader, you take the blows, but you are transparent and you're honest, and you stand on the side Time is of the up, people. Roderick Sawyer, on to you. 16. 
Right. Right. I looked at that group and I thought, we can't do better than this. I looked at that group, including the uh, fungible WGN representatives, and thought, we can't have an intelligent conversation in the city. I mean, other than on this show. It's just, it's just not possible. Between the political office holders and the press corps, well, and their press corps, I should denote ownership, there's just no interest in a intelligent conversation. You should watch these debates or candidate forums and feel insulted if you're a sentient being. That's what they think of you. All of them. That's what they think of you. And people, they think Chewy Garcia is the answer. Are you kidding me? He was a disaster last night. May I? Statements like the one that was just made by Lori Lightfoot is why people don't trust her and people want change in Chicago. Having said that, having said that, let me tell you about myself. I am the product of a movement for political empowerment of black and brown people in Chicago that elected Harold Washington. And over the past 40 years, I've worked to dismantle Chicago's machine. I was elected by people who trust me, and I sought to deliver for them. I delivered new schools, new playgrounds, new health clinics, many other things that the community needed. Uh, so the only interesting moment was uh, when Jamal Green, who we've had on the show, yeah, he's not a, man, enough, man yeah. enough to come on the show. Not afraid to come on the show. Uh, he went after Willie Wilson. This is in the context of oh. public safety and policing. And Willie Wilson is getting skewered for his comment from last debate that police should hunt down these violent criminals like rabbits. Um, and uh, Jamal Green tried to play that forward and... You'll listen to the response generated from Willie Wilson. It is disgusting that we have a 70-plus-year-old man on this stage who is a sharecropper from down south who would get on TV and constantly double down on hunting people down like rabbits. Well, I don't respond to kids. <laughs> that was great. I thought you blocked that was great. You know, it's uh, like, uh, it, mind your manners, Sonny. I know. He put him in his place. Like, respect you, your elders too, buddy. Uh, yeah. That's that's about the closest thing you're going to get to adult leadership in Chicago, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. What what is? I mean, maybe we'll have Jay Molly again. What does it mean? Seventy year olds. He's a sharecropper from down south. What's that supposed to mean? I don't know. I I, I guess he would say, well, that means his time has passed. Well, has it? Maybe. I don't know. Or that he should but, know better because he's suffered through racism or something. No, I don't, I don't think that's that, what he was saying. I think that he's saying he's out of touch, not in touch. Oh. Uh, and I think he's saying that he doesn't know what time it is in the city. He doesn't know what time it is in 2023 Chicago. Mm. Maybe he knows more than you think he knows, Jamal. Maybe he's been through things that you just talk about and rail against, but had never experienced. Well, that's a fact, isn't it? Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey.pro answer line. You could also text us. We're here all morning long at six four six three six. Type in DA, then a quick comment. What I'm telling you what um this these mayoral forums need is a little bit of what uh what you have in Harlem out east there in New York City. And I'm not talking about these genteel hecklers that interrupted Brandon Johnson. I'm talking about some committed folks with something to say. This is awesome, particularly the first guy. This is at a 
community forum of some sort put on by Congressman Adriano Espalot, who represents Harlem and surrounding neighborhoods. And uh, there are some folks in district that are not pleased with his representation. Hey, Mr. Espaillat, how about we talk about how corrupt and a liar you are? All right. 50 years in Harlem is still f***ed up, right? People are slumped over. 125th Street, guess what? They are slumped over and dying, and you are doing nothing about it. You don't Very speak good. for Adam Clayton Powell we Jr. Love New York. You don't speak for the American we people. We love New York. You are just as corrupt. And guess what? We're on the verge of nuclear war now because of you. Oh $100 billion for Ukraine, right? So much money for Ukraine. But what about for Harlem? This is not January 6th. It's this not. This is the 13th Congressional District. Hey, guess what? District. Mr. Espaillat, why don't you talk about the fact that people are dying in Harlem? I'm not going to stop unless you address me. Mr. Espaillat, how many people have died because of open-air drug trading, because of you and Schumer? How many people have died, huh? You are responsible for the deaths of thousands of people here in Harlem. There's a housing crisis, a homeless crisis. You have done nothing. You are utterly useless. And guess what? Now we are on the verge of World War III with Russia. What have you done? Nothing. You've only made things worse, and everybody's going to end up dead. We're on the verge of nuclear war, people. You didn't know. We love him anyway. Congressman, why are you going to tell the people of your district that Germany has just declared war with NATO on Russia? Are you going to tell your district that we're on the brink of a nuclear war with Russia? Because guess what? A nuclear war will f*** a lot of things up. When are you going to actually do something for this district? When are you going to seek diplomacy with Russia? That is the most important thing concerning the people of this district. You have to make peace with Russia. And we can have also the respect of law enforcement for our communities. We could have both. We could have both. And we deserve to have both. It could be used to support people in the Bronx. Last Congress. Last Congress. Do something for the people of your district. Stop Last calling Congress. out to these elites in the party. Well, we love her too. Adriana, why are you up. sending all of my tax money to Ukraine? <laughs> I am tired of sending all of my tax money to Ukraine. Good. You give $40 million to Ukraine, but you only give $20 million to New Yorkers. I hate this. You're sending all my money to Ukraine when I did not ask for that. I want to... Yeah, it's just great. Uh, it's I just wish I wish people uh, I you know I, it should be a melee. By the way, that first guy who just went on and on with right. his guess what's and guess what's you don't have to buy his uh, you know hysterics about nuclear war and stuff. That's not the point. He was yelling from the balcony. He was yelling from the second wow. floor. He just went, it's just so great uh, to um, what about Harlem? Fifty. I mean the big, the best line they said fifty years and everything still effed up. And where is anybody saying that in Chicago? Where's anybody saying, you know, you are the latest representations of a failed philosophy that has failed a city? Just yell this, Mayor Lightfoot. Since you became mayor, Chicago has 2,278 homicides. 
and over 9,000 shot. And you could mm-hmm. you could have recited the same stats with respect to Tiny Dancer's tenure. Mm-hmm. That's the point. 50 years right. in Chicago, 100 years. And what does the city have to show for it? <laughs> Anything that the city built? Oh, I know we have some great business leaders and and uh, talented architects and oh, the beans uh, people, gonna save us, people in the private sector. We have institutions that are supported by the wealthy. That's why they're great institutions like the Lyric or the Art Institute or the Shakespeare. But 50 years, 100 years of doing city business largely the same way. And where's Chicago now? It's the... Uh, the, these are the devalued potentates of a decimated city. And where's somebody who cares enough to just stand up and say it? Because you know nobody in the Chicago press corps is going to offer that sort of challenge. Their Chicago press corps, I should hasten to add. I just love somebody in the city to give a rat's ass enough to stand up and put it between the eyes of a triple threat and the rest of them, frankly. You've made the switch. And it feels so good. You switch to Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC. Equal housing lender. Signature Bank. The answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560. The answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Here's a question. What do you, what do, you do if you're a politician who won't protect your constituents. What do you do? You have to give the appearance that right. you're... You have to act like you care and that you're protecting them. So what do you do? You lie to them? I don't know. State Representative and Cal City Mayor Thaddeus Jones has an answer. He's uh, filed it in legislative form. The uh, Double Dipper has an answer. It's for businesses to double pay for their security. The Armed Security Protection Act provides beginning July 1, 2024, banks, pawn shops, grocery stores, and gas stations in municipalities having a population in excess of 2 million, that would be Chicago, uh, must employ... and have on the premises oh my at least one guard during the hours they conduct business with the public. Oh, my God. Right? What do you think? Uh, Heads up, banks, 
pawn shops, grocery stores, gas stations. You oh. uh, think you're paying a lot of taxes now. Well, you think the cost of doing business within the city of Chicago is high now. Well, you better layer in armed security during your hours of operation. That's how. That's the solution that's provided, uh, that's being uh, advanced, suggested by your duly elected members of the General Assembly, like Thaddeus Jones, the Double Dipper. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. Remember, well, during the George Floyd riots, the, you know, the summer of love, um, Mayor Life kept saying, you know, these, these stores have to do a better job of protecting themselves. With security guards. Yeah, so they're going to yeah. subsidize the purchase of security cameras. That was the city's big oh, idea. Right. And her big idea, triple threats, that is, uh, this campaign cycle is what? Tell the uh, business owners or uh, help the business owners in Little Village with the food carts and whatnot go cashless. Oh, my God. I mean, ridiculousness. Big what government. can you do? Right. What can you do to protect yourself? Stop looking to the city to provide police protection what can you do stop asking what uh, the police department can do for you ask what you can do for yourself since there is no functioning police department that's as if they've given up their hand you know like we, we surrender we can't protect you i know you pay taxes for police protection but we can't help you out so you're gonna have to take care of yourself you're gonna have to put somebody else on the payroll Related story, growing shortage of Chicago police officers impacting how the department staffs uh, a key office that helps track people convicted of certain crimes. The key office is the criminal registration unit. Uh, The people they track convicted of certain crimes are sex offenders. And others. Uh, WGN reporting that People were waiting in line for hours to comply with a state law that requires arsonists and those convicted of sex and gun crimes to check in and register with, with police. There is no other registration unit in the city. And there's sharing stories of ex-offenders who can't register because the unit is closed. There's no other registration unit in the city, and they're waiting in line for hours. Uh-huh. Huh. Craig Monk, Greenwood, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, good morning, uh, Dan and Amy. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Listen, there's so much uh, free, free and good uh, armed security available, but they're trying to constantly squelch it and basically take away the, the right of uh, law-abiding American citizens who are willing to carry and basically do the right thing if there's something going on. And it's a deterrent to criminals when you have uh, ar- you know armed people like that. But uh, it's all backwards in that. And you know, what do you think if there was some way to take and in that somebody would step up and uh, do something and say, hey, listen, armed security of um, law-abiding American citizens is the direction to go. Yeah, thanks for the call, Craig. Right. Uh, encourage business owners to carry and make it known that they they carry. Um, the, uh, just, but the, the, the larger point is just this flipping this back on constituents you pay probably primarily the service that you're primarily interested in is police for police police protection and this is what you're getting in response to the lawlessness oh by the way 
a lawlessness they continue to exacerbate with other innovative pieces of legislation like the Safety Act. But uh, nobody is saying anything about this approach to governance writ large beyond these nine candidates going back and coming forward. Black, white, Latino, damn politicians in charge of the city. What do you got to say? What is Chicago left with right now? 2023 Chicago. It's the best it's ever been. Huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you notice in that forum last night we were discussing at Steinmetz High School, the rhetoric started to get very gooey when it came to public safety. Even, I mean, it's always going to be gooey because look who we're talking about, but even more so than the debate, the ABC7 debate from a couple of weeks ago. Why? Because of the Tyree Nichols killing. And now we got to we got to be like, oh, you were for police, but and, you know, law enforcement's important, but uh, you right. Got to try and middle it. Got to try and hustle it on both sides. A sop to this constituency, a sop to that constituency. Start from there, start from false premises across the board, cater to everyone's ignorance rather than stand and deliver something of integrity on the critical issue facing the city. Did anybody really do that? I didn't see it. I haven't seen much of it. And Jason Ty- Riley, oh, go ahead. Well, and Tyree Nichols' funerals today. And did you hear who's delivering the eulogy? Uh, I didn't. Let me guess, Al Sharpton. Yes. And yeah. Kamala Harris is going to be there. And Reverend Jackson was invited. I'm like, I, Not a you, reverend. I, I just, they let them, they, they got hijacked by the race hustlers, the Nichols family. I know they're grieving. You do things out of character when you're grieving. But, I, I mean, that is just, ugh. It makes me sick to my stomach. You see other, you know, you see other situations like this, and it's the same people that show uh, up, again, are tapped to do the same job. Ben Crump is the attorney, yeah. and these uh, uh, poverty pimps and race hustlers show up, and they preen before the cameras, and their Big friends tears. in the media amplify what they have to say, which is the same nonsense they've been saying for 50 years of running their hustles. Okay. Like I said, nobody will step up and say anything of integrity. Well, Jason Riley did. Jason Riley did in the Wall Street Journal. Memphis problems are only going to get worse. Uh, You want police to pull back? You think that's the response? Well, that's when crime increases. See it over and over again. He uh, references the New York Times. (laughs) <laughs> New York Times squeezing in the phrase the old confederacy in uh, news coverage of Tyree Nichols's killing. Writes Riley, such is the desire of the media to shoehorn this tragedy into a predetermined racial narrative. Indeed. Jason Riley, uh, for those not familiar with his work, you should be. Uh, he's a black man. Grew up in uh, I th- I think he grew up in Harlem. I'll double check that, but I know he he came from meager beginnings, um, and he's a very good writer and intellect. 
Um, so here's what happens if you go down this preordained road, the left preordained road. More black and brown families, law-abiding ones, are victimized by criminals. So if that's the response you think is warranted in order to pander to people's ignorance, score political points, well, okay, but, the, the, but, but at least let's acknowledge that anybody who does that is doing so at the expense of the safety of law-abiding people, disproportionately black and brown people who populate the neighborhoods, disproportionately populate the neighborhoods that are riddled with violent crime. That's just the data. And I know all of these Democrats on stage last night and around the country are men and women of data and science. We know that. Criminology is a science. Data and science. Mm -hmm. In uh, New York City, home to the nation's largest police department, police shootings have declined by about 90% since the early 70s. Nationwide, police killed 999 people in 2019. The victims, almost all of whom had weapons, 424 whites, 253 blacks, 12 of the black victims, 26 of the white victims were unarmed. Systemic racism. Uh, again, Roland Fryer, which is, uh, again, somebody's work you should be familiar with. We've mentioned him a number of times on the show. He's a Harvard economist. Research, he's researched the aftermath of high-profile encounters between black suspects and police. Found a disturbing pattern. When police departments are investigated following incidents of deadly force that have gone viral, police activity tends to decline and violent crime increases. It happened in Ferguson after Michael Brown. It happened in Chicago after Laquan McDonald. And it happened in Baltimore after Freddie Gray. And you can bet it will happen in Memphis after Tyree Nichols. That's not me. That's not a white supremacist. That's the research of one of the youngest tenured faculty ever at Harvard, Harvard economist Roland Fryer, a, a black gentleman. So, again, you can believe the beautiful lies, say this over and over again, believe the beautiful lies and fall prey to the racial identity politics of most of the people, not all of them, but at least seven of the nine people on stage last night running for mayor. Um, but if you do, you may just want to share this with other people that all you are doing is facil facilitating an increase in the body count. You're not being a good person. And you're certainly not being a reasonable one. Jason in Northlake, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. What I was going to say is that now... Okay, we're gonna we're supposed to in quotes by our own security guards. Well, they've just untied my hands. Now I can totally circumvent the useless police force of the Chicago of Chicago. That is until somebody gets out of line and gets shot by personal security, and then we have to get rid of our personal security because it <laughs> makes black people feel threatened. And then round and round and round and round and round we go again. Thanks for the call, Jason. Talking about uh, Double Dipper Thaddeus Jones uh, legislation. You shall in Chicago, mm -hmm. if you're a bank, a pawn shop, a grocery store, a gas station, have a armed security guard 
during hours of operation. Wow. Because everybody can just afford that additional oh, personnel yeah, right. expense. Mm-hmm. Because uh, so many of those businesses operate on such huge margins. Okay. Uh, Roger, Southside. Morning, gang. Uh, I think by far last night, uh, like you said, I'd say six out of nine, preaching the same stuff we hear every single day. And one thing that, you know, about all the new programs they'd like to implement, what, what, whether it be through CPS or that, I didn't hear one of those six talk about what, what's really needed at the core in Chicago and across the U.S. Better parenting? I don't know if anybody's ever heard of it. It's two words. It's better and it's parenting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, they looked pathetic last night. It, it, Wilson was the winner. Uh, sorry, uh, Amy. You, you know, Vallis reminded me of what I used to see for 25 years when five foot two Rich Daly would step back and say, Paul's going to let you know what's going on at CPA. A, a, a meandering, useless, uh, conf- now he looks just old and confused. And like Dan said, trying to cover every base and make sure you touch every base when you go around after that home run. Uh, Wilson is the only chance from preventing pure flight out of Chicago. And when the flight happens, okay, because we're seeing it with all the businesses, we're seeing it little by little. Everybody who listens to this, your station in the morning or the afternoon, okay, next thing you know, oh, guess what? The props move. I know you're gone already, Dan, but. Or, hey, you know, the Jacobsons, yeah, they're, they're going to Florida. Okay. The only person that brought it up, he stole my phrase, which I was a little mad about, you know, about the animal farm. It, it is their animal farm. It, it's a Democratic uh, black and brown problem. And as you've seen with Lightfoot last night, you know, not on my watch, but, uh, you know, why would we arrest young black and browns? Why would we do that? You know, no, they should be able to rape and pillage here in Chicago. That's the Chicago way, right? Thanks for the call, I mean, Roger. Yeah, I mean, um, well, let's go to Matt in Mount Greenwood. Hey, hey good Matt. morning, Dan and Amy. Good morning. You know, these feeble-minded, race-hustling government agents and the people that worship at their altar are all clowns. Those of us who are actually taxpayers and don't feed it the trough of the government, are going to leave. I live in an area where there's many police, firemen, workers, right? And we're, we're saying nothing. But we're talking to our wives like me, and we're talking to our neighbors. We're out of here. That's mm-hmm. it. It's just going to be a matter of time. And it's so sad uh, to the gentleman who just spoke with you. Willie Wilson has my vote as well. He's the only guy that's got a spine who's independent and not beholden to these clowns. But it's just... The stupidity is palpable in this city and state, and it's, it's almost embarrassing. It truly is almost embarrassing. I was in Florida this weekend, and when I said I was from Chicago, they started snickering. They yeah. honestly got started snickering. It, 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 it's I a punchline. Like, Chicago's a punchline. Punch yeah. Thanks for the call, Matt. And by the way, too, something I, I uh, saw our friend John Garrido posted, too, Chicago police lieutenant, retiring, yep. getting out. Like one of thousands. You can be sure he's getting out. Yeah, 1,000 retired last year, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, 300, he, he posted something, though, too. This isn't just about retirements. 300 cops are leaving the Chicago Police Department every year. They're not retiring. They're going to work 
for other police departments. Yep. They're just retiring from Chicago law enforcement. They're not retiring from law enforcement. And so you want to talk about, you know, the kinds of police that you would be able to get to backfill all of these slots? Hmm. Now we can have fold in Memphis and have a conversation about it, which just like we talked about with the Safety Act, the original version of it. Um, you're going to have quality prosecutors leave prosecutors' offices because they're not going to be able to do the job they signed up to do, and the, just like we've seen happening in police departments. So um, that gathering storm is just getting bigger and bigger with each passing day, isn't it? You've made the switch, and it feels so good. You've switched to Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, Equal housing lender. Signature Bank. The answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560. The answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. I'm surprised this hasn't come up in the mayoral forums. It wasn't in the the, uh, NPR formerly AFL-CAO Times' questionnaire either. Why is no one talking about reparations in Chicago? All these identitarian thought leaders. What? Where? Where's everybody in reparations? Why are we talking about that in the context of racial justice? I don't understand. Well, Willie Wilson's been on this program talking about reparations. and That is true. Why he swore them. That is true. But, I mean, why isn't there a real push who on that stage would oppose, would dare oppose reparations? Anyone? So why have they not proposed to follow the wonderful model of uh, San Francisco and put together a committee to come up with a number and uh, suggest a way to finance it and let's get on with it? Chicago's behind the times, Right. I mean, San Francisco and California, there's arguments right now between the city of San Francisco and the state of California about what the number is and the stipulations. San Francisco was talking about giving, um, as we've talked about a couple of weeks back, giving each 10-year resident who identifies as black $5 million bucks. Five million. The uh, state committee, by reparations committee, by contrast, is only talking about $233,000 each. But the chairman of that committee said, actually, uh, everyone should get at least a million bucks. So, I mean, oh, there's, a, okay. there's a wide variety of opinion here on what the dollar figure is and, and how to fund it. 
Kamala Moore, who's the chairman of the California Reparations Committee, she supports uh, taxing the wealthy, raising estate taxes, property taxes to pay for these reparation payments. I mean, we should de- we right we should definitely do it. It's just a question of how much and and how you finance it. That's all. So I, I would think this again would be a hot topic for the mayoral candidates. They shouldn't feel limited to talk about public safety or city finances. Need to be big thinkers, right? Make no small plans, Chicago mayoral candidates. Where's the Daniel Burnham spirit in them? Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line. You can also reach us all morning long on our turnkey.pro text line 64636 type in DA then a quick comment there's so many people that are discussing this uh, in their circles by that I mean you know politics academia entertainment but Robert Johnson where where are Chicago leaders CNBC uh-huh that Investotainment Network, uh, they had a reparations, they sponsored a reparations chat with help from the Kellogg Foundation, of course with help from the Kellogg Foundation. Philanthropy, too, I should hasten to add. People talking about it. All the important circles, all the elite circles. You may not be talking about it, you may not be thinking about it, but who cares what you think? We're talking about what the elites think and what shall be imposed on me and you. That's what's important. Why not press them on this? Wouldn't that be fun? Maybe we'll ask Paul Vallis about reparations when he joins us at 7 o'clock. CNBC uh, chat featured author Kristen Mullen and Duke University public policy professor William Darity talking about uh, their book, From Here to Equality. Uh, They've got a plan for reparations. It costs about $14 trillion nationally. $14 trillion? Where are we going to get that money? Well, we'll just print a, it. That's a great question. Well, that's actually one of the responses. But so, fourteen trillion uh, spread over four. Let's round numbers: forty million Black Americans. So that's like uh, like three hundred fifty grand. I don't know. It's a lot of money. Two thirty-three in California. I mean, also, do you get do you get layered to, what, reparations from? Uh, local, state, oh, state, and federal. That would be the the three for yeah. Right. So if you get like if you get five million over ten from San Francisco, if you get two thirty three from California, if you get another three fifty from the feds, you know, pretty soon you're talking about real money here. Not bad, especially since we're not providing that recompense to any actual slaves. Mm-hmm. But I digress. Uh, here's um, Kristen Mullen, the author of the From Here to Equality on Reparations. So, you know, the federal government must pay this debt. Um, You know, this is the entity that gave itself, you know, the right uh, and the authority to enslave Black Americans uh, and to institute nearly a century of legal segregation. When we're talking about legal segregation, we're not only talking about keeping uh, Black people separate from white people. We're also talking about nearly a century of white terror attacks on black communities. Um, And these were focused on two different things, suppressing the black vote 
um, and also turning a blind eye to the destruction of Black people's property. Uh, and in some cases, actually, you know, uh, the federal government was party to those destructions. So, you know, you're talking about the seizure and appropriation of Black property. Um, but the federal government is also the only entity that has the capacity to pay the debt. Mm-hmm. Got to go where the deep pockets are. Okay. But uh, the federal government doesn't have any money that it doesn't take from someone else. You know, me and you. <laughs> federal government and their money trees in D.C. Uh, so let's get the professor in here. This is a Duke University public policy professor you're about to hear from. Duke. Okay. William Darity. All right, so uh, would this cost $14 trillion be passed on to the taxpayers? No, the government's going to pay for it, not the taxpayers. Okay, Professor, tell us how. It depends on how you do this. Yeah. Um, not necessarily. Not, yeah, we, we make the point in, our, in the final chapter of our book that there have been uh, a number of recent instances in which the federal government has made huge expenditures without raising taxes. Uh, and uh, one of those instances is the substantial expenditures the federal government made to, uh, to address the, uh, the health crisis associated with COVID. You don't necessarily have to raise taxes to undertake oh, really? uh, these massive uh, expenditure projects. However, and, and this is the, the critical caveat, uh, you do have to be concerned about the inflationary effects of these types of projects. And what we suggest in From Here to Equality is that there are two major steps that could be taken to minimize the inflation risk. One of those steps is to spread the payment of the $14 trillion out over uh, several years. We, we recommend no more, than, no more than 10 years or a decade but that would reduce the amount of annual expenditure that would be needed. And then the second thing that could be done to minimize the inflation risk is to provide people with uh, these funds in the form of an asset that is somewhat different from a direct cash transfer, something that's less liquid, that they cannot spend entirely all at one time. Uh, and so this could include uh, giving them reparations in the form of an annuity or a trust account or some type of an endowment uh, where there were limitations on the, the, uh, the amount that could be spent at each, at each moment. But the key thing is that ultimately the discretion for the use of the funds must reside with the recipients. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's uh, some heavy, heady uh, business there. Uh, okay, uh, Professor Wright, we're going to slow walk the uh, printing press to uh, moderate the inflationary impact of printing $14 trillion. Uh huh. Um, and that obviously is just another way. I mean, what, what, what is inflation? What is reducing the purchasing power of your dollar? It's effectively a tax. So, again, you know, the federal would taxpayers be on the hook for this? Not necessarily. Here's a way that we can sort of fashion a argument in the hopes that people can't connect dots to suggest that no, no, no. Uh, at least the California that are a little bit more honest, we're just going to soak the 
I mean, as honest as they can be, it's the soak the rich, which, of course, means soak everybody because the middle class is where most of the money is. Um, but OK, sure. And um, and also also the paternalism. Professor, professor, please. Uh, yes. The, these accounts that would uh, limit the amount and the uh, the areas in which somebody could spend the reparations windfall. Uh, well, who are you, professor, to be telling someone else where to spend their money when this is restitution for past wrongs? Professor, professor, it's almost like you don't trust. Oh, that paternalistic instinct from the left. Um, by the way, uh, since the government uh, was the, you know, is the government institutionalized racism, slavery, Jim Crow laws, and other discriminatory practices, um, policing to some extent during those periods of discrimination, racism, segregation. A couple of questions come to mind. Um, one is, um, well, um, I can't wait for my nephew's kids, 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 because with the de facto segregation going on now in all these elite institutions, I can't wait for white Christians uh, 150 years from now to be uh, lining up for reparations. We're just going to continue to run on this hamster wheel, are we? Um, number two, and I, I think our caller Richard from Blue Island is getting to it. Um, the government has taken steps to redress these grievances. Legitimate grievances, obviously, about uh, horrible and defensible conduct, slavery, Jim Crow, uh, racist policing, so forth. Um, so how do we factor that into that $14 trillion number? Or has it already been factored in? And you've given us a discount, you know, for the $35 trillion that's been spent in the last 50 years on social welfare programs that were going to remedy the ill effects. That's how, that's how they were sold, wasn't it? Richard Blue Island, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Yeah. Hi, Dan and Amy. Um, yeah. President Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, you know, that's reparations. I mean, do not marry your husband. Do not marry your wife. Marry the government and we will take care of you. Build these housing projects and everything like they did in Chicago and all the cities, you know, all the big cities, you know. And, bef you know, before the reparations, you know, the, you know, the black marriage rate was very high. It was very high between men and women. But, you know, don't marry your wife. Don't marry your husband. Marry the government. We will take care of you. Well, how did that work out? Right. Thanks for the call, Richard. So let me see. So are we going to have another claim that reparations are needed for the reparations the government's provided the last 50 years, which incentivized the destruction of families in general and perhaps had it was most negatively impactful on black families? You need reparations for those reparations? Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. You've made the switch, and it feels so good. You've switched to Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. 
they got the beat. The campus beat. The campus beat. Yeah, the campus beat. Uh, yeah, did I hear uh, Mike Scott reporting on Tony Sanders as the uh, new yeah. state school superintendent in Illinois? You remember Tony Sanders? He's the one who locked a kindergartner in his room or in a closet because he wasn't wearing his mask. And the mom was part of the Thomas DeVore lawsuit, so technically didn't have to wear one. That guy. Yeah. And then he did something, too, on social media. Do you guys remember? Something was on his Twitter page that was controversial, too. Well, what he really did is he presided over one of the worst school districts in the state for the last decade as superintendent Thank without you. effect. So a guy who uh, comes from the second largest school district in the state behind CPS, I guess uh, Pedro Martinez wasn't available. Um Two in ten students in U46 read at grade level. Two in ten, yes. Twenty percent. Who? Yeah, and you know rewarding we, that behavior. We got to scale that. Yeah. Actually, in 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 a lot of respects, we already have. But right, that's somebody you want to profile. That's somebody that's getting it done. Woo, getting it done. Oh, way to go, JB. Just one in every ten minority students in U46 can read at grade. Oh, level. and speaking of JB, uh, just I'm sure you know this. Everyone knows that the emergency. Declaration's going to end May 11th when the federal one ends. He made mm. that announcement yesterday. It's Thank wonderful. You. I'm glad wow. that he's flying in formation with Mr. 10%, yeah. the big guy. Uh, all right, let's kick it up to uh, the academy here. Um, got uh, some compare and contrast to do. If you're thinking about where to encourage your kids to attend college, if you're thinking about encouraging your kids to attend college at all, that is. College shopping right now. The 64-campus SUNY college system, that would be State University of New York, SUNY college system, ordering incoming freshmen at all of its colleges will have to pass a new diversity, equity, inclusion, and social justice class to earn a college degree. The, uh, Do we get the syllabus equity, yet? <laughs> well, the racial equity courses must include these things. Okay, I'm ready. Describe the historical and contemporary societal factors that shape the development of individual and group identity involving race, class, and gender. I'm out. <laughs> Analyze the, this is all academies. I know. Academies, I mean, you know, it's like just blather. It just means basically uh, read the 1619 Project and regurgitate it back to us. Analyze the role that complex networks of social structures and systems play in the creation and perpetuation of the dynamics of power, privilege, oppression, and opportunity. And apply the principles of rights, access, equity, and autonomous participation to past, current, or future social justice action. In other words, um, sign up to volunteer on some Democrats' campaign. And as I said, just uh, cut and paste Black Lives Matter boilerplate and, you know, We'll check that box for you. That's at SUNY. So all 64 State University of New York colleges. So that's New York. Uh, now, there are other states in the nation, and they're going in a different direction. Let me give you an example. Florida. Um, that's a direction a lot of New Yorkers are going, too, by the way. Oh, yeah. More moved there in 2022 than 2021. 465,000. Yeah, depopulating Manhattan and yeah. uh, sending it to southwest Florida and southeast Florida, for that matter. Uh, Ron DeSantis, he's the governor of the entire state of Florida. And he had a presser yesterday about higher ed. And what is going to be happening at uh, state-funded colleges and universities in the state of Florida? But they also recently all signed all state colleges signed a, a, a pledge 
to say that they are not going to have any indoctrinating programs like DEI and CRT on their campuses. And so that's great leadership, and we want to thank them for doing it. Uh, they, I think they got a little encouragement from the governor, but nonetheless, that's where it's at. So they're diametrically opposed, the colleges in Florida, to what the colleges in New York are doing. So you spin the wheel and pick a college in Florida, and you're going to be ahead of the game as compared to the colleges in states like New York, just on the the mandatory indoctrination piece of it alone. And that's really what DeSantis focused on. Uh, he's not only eliminating a die on campus, he's eliminating in all state bureaucracies as well. We are also going to eliminate all DEI and CRT bureaucracies in the state of Florida. No funding, and that will wither on the vine. And I think that that's very important because it really serves as an ideological filter, a political filter. You've seen different things. I mean, New College has really embraced that. And that's part of the reason I think it hasn't been successful in the enrollments down so much, uh, because I think people want to see uh, true academics and they want to get rid of some of the uh, political window dressing that seems to accompany all this. So that's no longer going to be uh, in the state of Florida. And I think we probably are the first state. Uh, that's actually leading uh, by example. But I can tell you those bureaucracies are not representative of what the people of this state and the taxpayers of this state want. Mm -hmm. So there you go, choices. Uh, something else, too, I just uh, think this is, is innovative. It's not going to happen in Illinois, of course, No, nor anything else DeSantis is doing. But I thought uh, the uh, something else he talked about yesterday – that he actually built upon is accountability for tenured faculty at the in the in the college setting. Uh, we brought a, accountability for tenured faculty. Now all tenured faculty at our state universities must undergo review every five years and can be let go if they are not performing to expectations. So well, that's uh, no, sobering. <laughs> yeah, no job for life. And what he did yesterday was. Uh, build upon that and say, now university presidents are empowered to call for a uh, performance review of tenure faculty at any time. It doesn't have to be after five years. So you can't just let people um, sit there and be stumps on a log because they're protected, not be productive, number one. And number two, depending on the attitude of the, the board of trustees of a particular university, you can't them. You can uh, instigate a performance review if they become just political actors, not scholars. They just produce political propaganda rather than academic scholarship. For example, you could do that. That's encouraging. So Florida, a lot of colleges in Florida options. That's going in a good direction. It's interesting how a culture change at the top radiates to the bottom. That goes in both directions. Um, one other uh, positive story, one other yeah. opportunity school. You should consider this perhaps for Eli. Uh, young Eli. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, which had a, a brief dalliance with retaining Nicole Hannah-Jones of the 1619 Project. They dodged that bullet. The uh, Board of Trustees of the University of North Carolina voted 12-0 last week to create a new school committed to free expression in higher education, well, at Chapel Hill at least, 
uh, UNC will establish the School of Civic Life and Leadership and plans to hire professors from across the ideological spectrum to teach in such academic departments as history, literature, philosophy, political science, and religion. Um, so, you know, the humanities, oh my gosh, uh, a non-Bolshevik in the humanities. Uh, that, of course, has the faculty up in arms. <laughs> right, these uh, great uh, protectors of the free marketplace of idea up in arms about... Uh, uh, such uh, intellectual diversity on campus, uh, understandable. This is their playground. But um, that's encouraging, too, that you see leadership coming from the board at, at Chapel Hill to do something like that, and we'll see what the implementation looks like if they actually keep this commitment. But it's a positive step, at least. 312-642-5600 is our turnkey DEPRO answer line. So, I mean, you know, it's such a... We have to talk about the dismal so often when it comes to education generally, and particularly uh, colleges and universities. But there are some sensible people trying to do some sensible things, even in institutions where it's difficult. And uh, political leaders like DeSantis driving some sensible things at colleges and universities, even where there is resistance as there most certainly has been in Florida, and he mentioned New College in Sarasota where he just replaced the Board of Trustees. Jim in LaGrange, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hi, good morning. It's too bad they don't make those uh, incoming New York uh, students take a Western Civ class and pass that. You know, they could learn about Plato and Socrates and all those famous philosophers. That's right, exactly. Well said, Jim. I can tell you passed that, with, that Western Civ course with the flying colors. Um, now, on the other side, just to go back to the other side here, where do we go? Well, you have to go to Illinois. Of course, we've already covered New York. Um, let me introduce you to a professor who, if she was in Florida, would probably be the subject of a tenure review. At least I'm sure DeSantis would support that. Rochelle Gutierrez is her name. Uh -huh. um, her scholarship... She's a professor at U of I. I think she's Stanford-educated. Says something about Stanford in addition to U of I. Her scholarship focuses on issues of identity and power in math. Paying particular attention to how race, class, and language affect teaching and learning. Through in-depth analysis of effective teaching, learning communities, and longitudinal studies of developing and practicing teachers, her work challenges deficit views of students who are Latinx, black and indigenous and suggest that math teachers need to be prepared with much more than just content knowledge, pedagogical knowledge, or knowledge of diverse students. If they're going to be successful, they need political knowledge. Her current project focuses upon developing in pre-service students and, and pre-service teachers the knowledge and disposition to teach powerful mathematics to urban students and the political knowledge that mathematics teachers need to effectively rehumanize math in an era of high-stakes education. She builds upon the indigenous principles and has argued for a new form of mathematics where humans are no longer centered. The form of mathematics uh, Ms. Gutierrez has invented is referred to as living mathematics with an X. You know, like Latinx. Now it's mathematics. Math-E-M-A-T-X, not I-C-S. 
mathematics, living mathematics. Well, okay. I hope um, all those would-be engineers down at U of I avoid the living mathematics courses from uh, uh, Professor Gutierrez because, uh, number one, it's not going to turn out well for you in the real world of engineering. Number two, uh, the reputation of Illinois' engineering school is going to decline precipitously. So uh, there you go. Mathematics. No, never and, saying it. <laughs> and die in Illinois and New York and Western Civ and Free Thought at uh, colleges in Florida and at Chapel Hill in North Carolina. Choices. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Connect with Dan and Amy using the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So there was another Chicago mayoral forum. Can't call these things debates. They don't resemble anything even close to a debate. Forum for Chicago mayoral candidates at Steinmetz High School. And uh, basically it was just a bunch of people accusing other people of being a funder or not a funder. Are you a funder or are you a defunder? Of police and everything else. Of everything. Of Education, everything. police. Everything. And they only had 60 seconds to answer each question. It's ridiculous. Funder or defunder? The good news is the upshot of it all, as far as I can tell, is everybody's a funder of everything. Sky's the limit. Uh, Brandon Johnson, who's the CTU shill that's running for mayor's Cook County Commissioner, He's the guy that proposed the three and a half percent city income tax on people making more than a hundred grand. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's nice. Uh, he he I'm, tried I'm to all play, for Brandon. He tried to play this. Let's go, Brandon. Yeah. Uh, go. He tried to play this fund uh, funder defunder game. The defunder on the stage is actually Mayor Lori Lightfoot and Paul Vallis. They've defunded our public schools. They've defunded our mental health services. Yeah, you know Lori Lightfoot, that skin flint when it comes to other people's money, right? Uh, ironically, in the Sun-Times questionnaire that put uh, sort of 23 yes-no questions to the various candidates, do police have a place in the schools? Yes, said Paul Vallis, Willie Wilson, Roderick Sawyer, Sophia King. No, Brandon Johnson. Oh, really? <laughs> so, Well, ask I, the I kids know- at Juarez about that because now everybody wants the police back. I guess, he would, I guess he would say, well, we need more funding because I'm a funder. Everybody's a funder. Invest, 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 invest in our schools and our neighborhoods and our businesses and our city and our state and our country and America. Invest, 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 invest. What do you mean by that? You know, you give me stuff and I tell you where I'm going to put it. For more on all this, please be joined by one of those mayoral candidates. He is former CPS superintendent Paul Vallis. Paul, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Uh, Paul Vallis 2023, by the way, is the website, Paul Vallis 2023. Um, so uh, your response to Brandon Johnson, he accused you of being a defunder. Can't let that yeah, stand. Yeah, I guess. Well, I, I think he was referring to me as defunding Chicago Public Schools. I'm still trying to figure that out since right. 
if I recall, I left the schools with about a billion dollars in cash balances, and I think we operated under the property tax cap virtually every year. Uh, I also pointed out that when we left the district, we left the district with um, 125,000 more students than it has currently. And incidentally, it's interesting, and Amy can relate to this, we were in Steinmetz High School. Steinmetz High School is one of the, I think, 16 high schools we put international baccalaureate programs. And, of course, Amundsen, where your uh, child graduated as a valedictorian, was certainly a beneficiary of those great programs. Oh, yeah, because the selective enrollment process is it's impossible. I mean, it's harder to get into a, a selective enrollment high school than an Ivy League college. But that's so what, never... we did, what we did, Dan, was we put magnet programs in neighborhood schools. So this idea that instead of simply having these selective enrollment magnet schools, why don't we magnetize the neighborhood schools? And the Ivy programs were phenomenally successful. We put in Taft, we put in Curry, Amitz and Sen, and of course, Steinmetz. We also put the military academy in Steinmetz. And and while Steinmetz has not enjoyed perhaps the success that Taft has not uh, has enjoyed, it's certainly a far better school than it was before those programs were put in. Uh, but, of course, the uh, the global answer is more competition in that system than currently exists. Would you agree? Yeah, it, definitely. And, and, and I've always been a strong advocate of, you know, obviously uh, uh, public school choice, but also a big supporter of the scholarship program and, and uh, of course the scholarship program that now the governor supports so at the end of the day more choice is certainly better and and the district during during our period during our tenure was better off for it in fact the only what choice did uh, during those years was the only the district has only seen enrollment increase in eight years since 1979 when enrollment peaked and in six of those years in fact, six straight years were the years that uh, Gary Chico and I were running the school. So I think uh, our expanded high-quality school choice options made the district a lot more attractive. Well, it's not very attractive today. And so if you're running the schools after April, uh, the question is what can be done, if anything, to um, address all of the horrors that are going on in that school system educationally, uh, criminally and financially, and of course, criminally and financially, I'm referring to that OIG report, which I don't believe came up as an issue in last night's uh, mayoral forum again. But uh, the allegations of widespread sexual abuse of students and perhaps a multi-billion-dollar financial fraud per the average daily attendance reports. Well, look, you know, I think you have to do the following things. As you know, when they created when you have the uh, sex scandal revelations uh, about that were revealed in uh, four or five years ago, they set up the inspector general uh, and they gave the inspector general the resources and the capacity to monitor complaints. Uh, now the, the question is, are those complaints going to be processed and what's going to be the consequences? You know, when, when I ran the Chicago public schools, we actually embedded DCFS within the department and obviously all complaints will run through really the Chicago Police Department and DCFS. So if we had accusations, now it was a more primitive time because you didn't have obviously social media and the internet and obviously a lot of the predatory uh, activities were being done over the internet. Of course, you didn't have that then. But the bottom line is, the question is now, what? how is the school, how how is the system going, going to work in terms of processing the complaints? 
Well, let me speak to the issue of what needs to be done at the schools. And I'm going to have a press conference tomorrow to talk about this. Right now, that system needs to be broken up and decentralized, right? They're spending $30,000 a kid, and only about 60% of that money is actually finding its way into the local classroom instruction. And you really have to radically decentralize the system so the money finds its way to the local schools. I think the second thing is those campuses have got to be open 24 – they've got to be open – through the dinner hour on the weekends over the summer, and you've really got to bring the park district and community-based organizations, faith-based organizations into the schools so that the kids have a safe, secure place to go. That's really what we did in the 90s uh, when, uh, when the murder rate in Chicago was actually approaching 1,000. I think the third thing to do is to introduce work-study into the high school curriculum. There's no reason why city agencies, city departments, the unions, uh, contractors, cannot create work-study jobs for these kids. So instead of having kids take a role of an elective, kids can be involved in work-study. The fourth thing is you've, they need to, they've got to expand the alternative schools program. They, have, they, they could create a series of alternative charter schools to capture these 18 to 25-year-olds that have simply left the system. And in fifth, they've got to expand, they've got to expand parental choice. They've got to give parents more options because unfortunately, Many parents, uh, their children are literally held hostage in schools uh, uh, based on their income limitations and obviously based on where they live. Well, There's well, well, those are all worthy ideas, but I, and so, so I'm, not, I'm not dismissing them. I'm embracing them by and large. But, but going back, if I was, speak for myself, if I was superintendent or if I was mayor, I would say do not send your kids to school until we get this situation figured out with respect to this kid's safety. Because when you have hundreds upon hundreds of complaints, and there may be a process for it, and there may be people bearing it as long as nobody draws attention to it, you have to have leadership at the, on the fifth floor in the schools that says, we are, going to, we, are, we are going to talk about this. We are going to bring things out of the shadows and into the light so people can have confidence that their kids are safe, they're not being preyed upon, when they're at school, for God's sakes, and I don't—I mean, the, the lack of of dialogue about this, the lack of people pointing to this and saying this shall stop, the sort of the process arguments. Yes, you have to have a process for adjudication of claims, but you also have to put pressure on Kim Fox to prosecute. You also have to put pressure on the teachers' union to not defend terrible teachers. You need to put pressure on the administrators to root this stuff out and these people out. And I don't see that happening. I, I don't hear it happening. Well, look, all I know is no one has ever accused me of being a wallflower on accountability. No one has ever accused me of being unwilling to take on uh, the teacher unions. No one has ever accused me of not being a strong advocate for expanding quality educational choices. That's one of the reasons that I'm running for mayor. And when you have these public forums where the questions are selected by the individuals, the individual stations, whether it's WGN or whatever, and you have sometimes 90 seconds, or in another public forum, you have 45 seconds to answer questions. It, it doesn't give you a lot of time. I mean, yesterday, we, we weren't even permitted to make introductory remarks, or for that matter, closing remarks. But, right. uh, but I endeavor to attend every forum. Um, you know, you should uh, look in on my press conference tomorrow, and where I'll be surrounded by a sea of educators who have worked with me in four different districts, including New Orleans, where I created the countries um, where, where created a school system, the only school system in the country 
where parents can pick any school that they want to send their kids to. And I like to think that one of the reasons I'm running for mayor is to, to, uh, is to address the very issues that you've been articulating on the radio. All right, let's uh, move on. Uh, 5,000 asylum seekers have come to Chicago, and Mayor Lightfoot wants to use the empty school in Woodlawn. Uh, would you, if you were mayor, would you be doing the same thing? No, absolutely not. First of all, you, you know, first of all, there's a process for handling people who come to the city. Again, I'm going to harken back to the 1990s when we were running the schools, and we had many students coming to this, uh, you know, to this, uh, to our, our, or we had many children coming to our school system who, who may have had questionable immigration status, but there was a process for handling them. We would admit them to the schools. We would connect them with immigration and naturalization. There was a process. We simply wouldn't open a school and put everybody in a single school in the neighborhood that you didn't even consult prior to the decision to locate them. Well, what would All you do with them? Because she says she's busting at the scene. There's nowhere else to put these people. Well, you know, first of all, you don't bait people as she did, but you don't bait people and then not be prepared for it. You know, there are, what, 77 neighborhoods in Chicago. There's opportunities for individuals to be dispersed among those neighborhoods, not simply located in a single school. Clearly, she decided to grandstand on this, and then she wasn't prepared for the consequences. So all you're doing is dividing the community, and I like to think that you're making things worse, not better. So there is a process for doing There There is a process for handling this. There are, nat- there are natural institutions for processing immigrant, uh, immigrants who come here who are obviously looking for schooling. And not only, not only that, but also looking for housing without just suddenly uh, you know, taking a school uh, in the middle of a community without any prior notification and spending a ton of money renovating it and basically saying this is going to be our immigration center. So I, I think it, all of that has been badly handled. Is it the city's responsibility in the first place? Well, look, my position is if people come to the city, there are institutions in place to manage that and, and, and for, to manage that, to manage immigrants who are coming in. My position with the Chicago Public Schools was I was going to take children no matter what. I was going to check their immigration status. I was going to provide them with educational services. And then I was going to link their families with immigration and nationalization. Or for that matter, the CHA, if there was a need of housing, there's like thousands of, of, of vacant CHA units available. And then there were community-based, look, we just had an infusion of, of, of refugees from Afghanistan, and they were dispersed among a number of neighborhoods on the north and northwest sides. I remember I went to some of the gatherings where they're, you know, they were trying to get them, uh, uh, you know, you know, they're trying to get them uh, clothing, and, and, there were, and there were these community-based organizations were trying to find uh, uh, places where they could stay, and they were kind of dispersing them within the community. So there's a process to do this, but uh, and but obviously she has mishandled this process altogether, and and certainly she was unprepared uh, uh, for the response to her rhetoric. Uh, uh, yesterday, um, Lori Lightfoot uh, said what she always says: "I hear a lot of criticism, but I don't hear any solutions when it comes to public safety, uh, and many of the things that are being proposed." by other candidates she's already doing uh, so so and, and last year we a uh, thousand cops left the force uh, about 300 are not retiring but they're just leaving to go to other police agencies every year according to one police lieutenant uh, who's a friend of ours so uh, what do you do to uh, undo what she has done and get 
uh, police back on the force and, you know, proper experienced police that know how to do police work. So, so what you do, and I've discussed this many times on your show with Amy when I've had the opportunity to co-host, uh, the following. First of all, you have to stop the exodus. And, and I have confidence that I'll be able to slow the exodus because I helped the police negotiate an eight-year contract, which included all the accountability provisions that the sergeants had in their contract. And that eight-year contract uh, uh, probably prevented 2,000 additional cops from simply retiring because they had not had a contract, a pay increase in four years. But what I would do is, uh, what I would do is, remove Brown and his leadership team and promote uh, officers from within who have the command and respect of the of the rank and file. That will improve morale overall, uh, almost immediately. Put the officers on a normal schedule and push the work schedule, not abuse them, and then push the officers down to the local police beat so that you have local beat integrity. You need to have cars covering the local police beats. I would also. I would also jettison the unarmed, untrained, uh, can't make arrests, private security that they're spending $100 million on in the CTA, and I would replace them with as many as 300 additional police officers. This would allow you to also have police officers on the CTA platforms and at the CTA stations and even riding the trains. Now, the question would be, well, how are you going to fill all those vacancies? If you have new leadership, if you allow the police to be proactive, uh, if you uh, give them a normal schedule, if you push them down to their local beach so you're not putting them all over the city, you will significantly reduce the exodus, and then it will give you an opportunity to catch up. But well, you, would, short- you, would, you, would you support things like uh, reducing the paperwork associated with stops to and, and encouraging more stops, maybe even going so far as stop and frisk so that police are more proactive and not back on their heels like they've been for the last half a dozen years at least? Well, first of all, Chicago has never had stop and frisk. You know, what I would do is okay. not, what I would do. What I would do is not penalize police for making arrests, for arresting somebody, for assaulting somebody, for damaging public and private property. Uh, you know, for you know, for basically uh, uh, violating the public way. Uh, I would enforce ordinances. And right now, the police are not even being allowed to enforce ordinances. I'm also convinced if you do this. There's a number of things that you could do to to uh, increase the ranks right now with veteran officers. There are veteran officers or hundreds of veteran officers who left who will return there in other police stations. Uh, but they want to return right now. But he's basically telling them that they can't join the union and they have to go to the police academy again. I would allow them to return with no loss in seniority. And I would also invite retired officers to return, as other mayors have done in other cities, and, and there are hundreds of police officers, individuals who used to be police officers, who uh, work in the fire department and, other, and hundreds in the fire department, for example, who could easily be tapped to work part time as police officers, uh, you know, in the uh, with the Chicago Police Department in emergencies and things like that to basically fill uh, fill uh, uh, the need when there's a, an emergency to cover special events. So there are things that you can do right now to boost the ranks with seasoned officers. And if you slow the exodus of officers and you have a department that's now attractive to, uh, you know, to uh, seek employment in, uh, I think you can correct this problem right away. I I do want to close by saying when my son returned from Afghanistan, he was a combat medic. He wanted to be a police officer and uh, he couldn't even get on the list 
to take the exam because there were like 10,000 people signed up. Now they're literally recruiting police officers off the street or at the airports. And they've abandoned almost all standards for the hiring of new police officers, which is going to create a crisis in the future. Uh, so at oh. the end of the day, I've laid out a plan on how to do this, and that plan will be effective. And I'm, I'm pretty confident that I could restore uh, public safety uh, in short order once I get elected mayor. Boil it down for us. Uh, a lot of people of a center-right persuasion politically are oscillating between you and Willie Wilson, sort of the only two seemingly somewhat outsider candidates. Why should center-right voters vote for you over Willie? Well, you know, I like Willie, so I'm never going to, uh, you know, criticize Willie. Willie and I are close friends. We both lost our sons. We both spent a lot of time together. At the end of the day, let me just say why people should vote for me. Willie could explain or, or, or can, you know, justify his candidates, uh, his candidacy on his own. Uh, people should vote for me because I, I, I think I've always demonstrated my independence, but on public safety, obviously, um, I believe that the, the, there's no more important human right than than being safe, and I think the primary responsibility for public safety for public safety is the primary is lies in the mayor's office, and there's no more important public uh, you know public service than providing quality public safety. Secondly, I've always been a strong supporter of expanding educational opportunities for and educational options for families. I think that's been demonstrated. And third, there, there's no one, there's no one running who, who has ever managed, with the exception of the mayor, and we know she's done it disastrously, multi-billion-dollar budget successfully. And I've demonstrated the ability, the ability to put more police officers on the street to improve public services while holding the line on property taxes. And I did it both at the city and obviously success in balancing school budgets and expanding quality educational opportunities, while at the same time holding the line on property taxes has also been demonstrated. So the city needs somebody who can tackle this budget and make sure that the city is safe, make sure that the city has quality schools, and make sure that we're keeping the city affordable. He is Paul Vallis, former CPS superintendent, candidate for mayor of the city of Chicago. February 28th is the election. Early voting has started. More information on Paul Vallis, paulvallis2023.com. Paul, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Listen to podcast of Dan and Amy from the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, let's take a couple of calls, reaction to our conversation with Paul Vallis and your reflections on his candidacy in the mayor's race. Jefferson in Saganash here on Chicago's Morning Answer. Good morning, Dan and Amy. How are you? Good morning. Amy, I'm one of your 214 brothers, Wheeling High School, 89. Yes. Love I was, uh, I, I uh, attended the uh, City Club luncheon yesterday, Mr. Vallis spoke at, and I got to say, although he gets my support, I was a little disappointed in what he had to say. It was, uh, you know, the usual talk about disinvestment in communities, disadvantaged, equity, et cetera. I was just hoping for someone who has as much experience as that man does working in multiple cities, hearing a little bit more about the city finances and 
what he plans to do, but it was just kind of a same old, same old with him. Are you still going to support him? Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, what, what, who do you, I mean, Dan hit it on the spot just a few moments ago, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's between him and Willie, but you know, when I, when I hear about what, just what he had to say, you know, uh, putting uh, the migrants in CHA housing and so forth. That's not what that housing is there for. You know, I just don't, I, I, I don't know why he can't sharpen up his, his plan, what he quote unquote endeavors to do, but it's, uh, you know, he's got my support when you look at the other candidates, but uh, I was just a little disappointed. Thanks for the call, Jefferson. Uh, John on the Dan Ryan. Hi, uh, hi, Dan and Amy. Um, you know, all these candidates running for office talking about uh, letting the police do their job. The police don't want to do their job as long as Kim Fox is in office. They're living under fear of being in charge criminally for every little thing they do and being the next viral video. So the, the mayor's office has, has zero power in controlling Kim Fox, and she'll continue doing what she wants. And that's the, that's the number one fear of Chicago police officers, any police officer in Cook County for that matter. Are you they police? do not want to be, yes. Yeah. And, and that, that, that comes in any police officer's thinking. Uh, and that's why you have an apathetic police. Uh, yes, you have these videos coming out. It, and the Memphis thing, obviously, is a, is, a, is a terrible tragedy. But just regular police work is something that isn't being done because of fear. Thanks for the call, John. It's mean, a, a good point. And then, but you have to have a mayor that stands up and calls out the, Kim Fox in right. that office as needed. So that has, to, that has to be part of it, which is sort of my fundamental question about Paul Vallis. He's somebody who knows the system. But my question is, is he more of the system than not? No, I think he would actually have a conversation because for two years I've heard Mayor Lightfoot complain about Kim Fox and David Brown, the superintendent, but they never sit down and have a conversation or talk about it, what they're doing and how she's releasing you know, violent offenders on electronic monitoring. They all complain about it, but do something about it. Ron on the South Side, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, good morning, Dan. And Dan, you know, that's pretty much my i like some uh, paul Voss ideas but i i'm with you that i i just don't think that he's interested in challenging the system as i've told you all before i think he'll give it a a a different um look to people but but challenging but but real but let me get to the real specifics uh i like his idea because he's always i think had some support as far as choice getting money down to a local level now I disagree with he said the schools need to be open longer. Yes, Why? they do. To, to, well, 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 kids no, are no, looking no, no, for no. stuff to do on the weekends, and there's can all I these empty a, gyms at every high school. Something? Oh, come on. Can I say something? Yes, okay. you can, Ron. I don't. Here's my thing. Why should the school be open longer to do nothing longer? And guess what, Amy? None of those children are coming, going to be in there. See, and I know I know things are different. School closed at three fifteen when I was young. And guess where I went? I went home. That see, that's what the YMCA. We 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 went to the Y and stuff. But the school was closed. Go home, do your homework, okay? But no, that's paying more money. That's additional money for uh, light the building, keep gas going, have someone there work. And guess what, Amy? For the most part. Ninety percent of those schools in the evening will be closed. They're not there during the daytime. Lastly, he talked about um, 
police retiring. Nah, yeah, Ron, we can bring Ron, them back. We got it. We got to go, Ron. But I appreciate that, that's 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 not going to work though either. Appreciate your comments, Ron. Thanks for the call. All right, we got to uh, switch gears here now and welcome our friend Steve Moore, who is an economist and the author of Govzilla, among other works. Steve, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, good morning, guys. I, I'm excited to hear you're going to get word, rid of the worst uh, mayor in America. That's good news. Well, well it's we'll a work see. in progress. Yeah. <laughs> Early voting has begun. Yeah, we'll and I got to okay. find a way to get an absentee ballot to the Teak House at Georgia Tech stat for my <laughs> family to vote for all ballots. Well, I, I, would, I would vote for my coffee table over... Uh, over your current governor. So. Um, the other good news this week, uh, Mr. 10 percent, the big guy, President Biden, announced that uh, the emergency declarations yeah. uh, to deal with COVID are coming to an end. And uh, he tried to explain why when he was queried about it by the press. What's behind the decision to end the COVID emergency, Mr. President? What's behind your decision to end the COVID emergency? COVID emergency or end the we extended from May the 15th to make sure we get everything done. That's all. There's nothing behind the wall. May, first of all, it's May 11th, not May 15th. That's just how arbitrary everything is. <laughs> uh, it's going to no. end when the yeah. Supreme Court says it ends, May 15th, because we're going to get everything done. Uh, okay. So, yeah. The reason this sure. matters is is that um, a couple things. Number one, uh, remember the uh, student loan bailout um where that started uh obviously under biden um do you know how he asserted the authority to do that uh the student loan program yeah yeah i mean the the forgiveness of the student loans you know that's that should uh, go through congress you know how he did it he said i i gotta get to get this stuff done and the supreme court will tell me when it's time to end something like that (laughs) yeah but he asserted the authority through the uh, COVID emergency which is laughable. What does student loan forgiveness have to do with COVID? Yeah, so, precedent I, setting. Point, the, yeah, the point I'm making is that these are very – when you uh, give a president emergency powers, you know, in a time of war or after a terrorist attack or during, during a virus, they take – they become essentially like a king. You know, they can do whatever they want to do. It, we should have ended this COVID emergency uh, back in early – 2021 for goodness sake i mean covid's been over for at least a year and a half so the idea it's almost laughable that they still uh and the fact that he wants to wait until the middle of may to end this it should have ended last may so uh this is ridiculous and the other reason this matters is that um there are all these government programs you know all of these welfare programs that basically gave extended and expanded benefits that continue now through the through the middle of May. They should have been, again. This is costing us tens of billions of dollars to keep this quote COVID emergency going. So, it's I find it to be outrageous. I want to mention another thing that's related to this because there's going to be a vote on this uh, maybe today or tomorrow. Did you know? Did you guys know? It has been almost three years. Since federal employees have been required to show up in the office, oh, yeah. did you know that? Yeah, forty-seven percent still aren't back at work. Uh, I had noticed. Had anybody else? Had anybody yeah. else noticed? I had noticed. Well, it's in all aspects of yeah. No, by the way, nobody notices that they haven't been at work, which which makes you wonder whether we need these programs at all. But so that's point number one. Point number two, folks, 
these people have been collecting a full-time paycheck mm-hmm. for three years, and a lot of these people haven't shown up for work. I, we have people in our neighborhood who are federal employees. They work maybe three or four hours a week, a, a day, and, and then collecting a full-time paycheck thanks to rich Uncle Sam. It's, and then we wonder, gee, why are we running a $1.4 trillion deficit? And we're spending money like it's candy. Well, um, the other thing is we've got to move on from COVID because we have another burgeoning health crisis that, that, uh, that, that needs an executive action. And, of course, talking about abortion, uh, DHS, uh, HHS and President Biden being urged by lawmakers as well as abortion, pro-abortion advocates, of course, to uh, uh, issue uh, an emergency declaration because of the full-scale reproductive health crisis, quote-unquote, that the Dobbs decision has unleashed, and this would allow the administration to help support states that protect abortion, deploy public health service corps teams, give the government the ability to accelerate access to new medications wow. authorized for abortion. So we need to, to deal with this other health emergency, aborting kids. So, uh, by the way, this is the first I've really actually heard of that, that that's a pretty scary idea, whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, and whatever what side you're on on this. Again, what you're basically doing is subverting the courts and subverting Congress. I mean, if the, if the Democrats want to pass a law, they have the ability to do that. So, you know, since when do we have a president who's a dictator? Well, and on this uh, back and forth between uh, President <laughs> Biden and Kevin McCarthy about the debt ceiling. So it's interesting. Um, we hit the debt ceiling and uh, we're, the Western civilization is about to end. But, uh, <laughs> I know, but, but, I know but, it's but, that too. The world the, didn't come to an end. <laughs> well, but, but the Treasury is going to borrow a quarter of a trillion dollars more uh, this quarter right. than they had originally projected they were going to borrow. So um, I guess it's no big deal. Yeah, you know what's what's amazing too, related to this, is this new math that they use. So, uh, many of your uh, listeners probably heard Joe Biden say that um, he is the deficit reduction king. You know, he is the most fiscally responsible president we've had, you oh, know, right. since Abraham Lincoln, uh, because he has reduced the budget deficit. Have you guys, uh, Amy, have you heard him say this that he's reduced the budget deficit by one point four trillion? Yes, you heard him say, yes. say that. He yeah, so I want to just make sure. I want to make sure your, your your listeners understand what a bogus claim that is. So what happened was Biden came in, and remember, it was the all of these multi-trillion-dollar spending bills he passed in 2021 when he came into office. And so we ballooned the deficit to an all-time high $2.8 trillion in one year, $2.8 trillion in 2021. And so last year, 2022, you ready for this? You sitting down? We cut, we cut the deficit all the way down to $1.4 trillion. Yay! What a superhero! Right. So he's claiming he's cut the deficit by $1.4 trillion. I mean, yeah. he's a fiscal conservative. Right. That's, he that's right. He's a, that way. That's fiscal yes. conservatism in action right there, DC style. <laughs> I love it. I mean, That's great. Stuff up. And, and, and you know, and if you and if you have uh, other spending cuts you'd like to make, like those great cuts you were just talking about, those are considered cuts in D.C. parlance. Um, then, as he said to Kevin McCarthy, if you show me your budget, I'll show you mine, which I think he also <laughs> uses to pick up the ladies. But anyway, <laughs> well, the, here's the thing. I'm going to give uh, I, I just met with some of the Republicans. House leaders yesterday, we just chatted about, well, because thank you, show, show me your list. Okay, you ready? Here's the list. You can write this down, okay? We can save 
$75 billion by not hiring 87,000 new IRS agents. Okay, there's 70, scratch off $75 billion. Then we can save $325 billion by ending the green energy slush fund. Okay, so now we're up to $400 billion yeah, of savings. Okay. Then we can mm-hmm. save another $120 billion for, for um, finding, detecting, uh, the criminals who stole money from the unemployment insurance PPP program, the Medicaid program, the food stamp program, we get that money back. Now we've saved a half a trillion dollars. Is that so hard? And by the and, way, I didn't even touch Social Security. I didn't even touch Medicare. And we, we could save another $100 billion if we uh, cut Tony Fauci's pension. Oh, yeah. Right? There's, so that's $600 billion. Oh, <laughs> So we're getting up there. This yeah. is a layup, guys. It ain't, it ain't tough. <laughs> right. Easy stuff. Steve Moore, economist and Godzilla author. Steve, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Okay, guys. Have a great week. Take care. Thanks. You too. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. It's news, opinion, insight. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560. The Answer. Sports and politics and sports and politics and sports and politics and intersection. Arrogance and ignorance. Arrogance, ignorance, and arrogance and ignorance. Intersection. Tom Brady Redux. Tom Brady <laughs> retiring from football. Giselle Bunchen going back to modeling. Giselle Bunchen victorious. Here's the announcement that was made during our interview with Paul Vallis, by the way. Good morning, guys. Hi. I'll get to the point right away. I'm retiring. Oh, no. Good. No. I know the process uh, was a pretty big deal last time, so when I woke up this morning, I figured I'd just press record and let you guys know first. So I uh, won't be long-winded. Like you only get one super emotional retirement essay, and I used mine up last year, so... Uh, really, thank you guys so much to every single one of you for me? supporting me. My family, my friends, my teammates, <laughs> my competitors. Uh, I could go on forever. There's too many. Um, thank you guys for allowing me to live my absolute dream. Yep. I wouldn't change a thing. That maybe get my wife Love back. you all. <laughs> is this is this a play to get Giselle back? Do you think? Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line. Yeah. Six four six three six. Type in GA, then a quick comment. You know what, Dan? I think you're on to something. He wants the girl back. Plus, this is all part of Roger Goodell's script. So the the phony uh, personal foul call on the Bengals, so that Kansas City can kick the field goal, go to the championship, and uh, then you got Andy Reid against his old team. Now you usher out stage left. Tom Brady permanently, so there's no one that uh, is taking attention away from the marquee quarterback in the NFL, who's Pat Mahomes. They'll be the MVP again, probably. Maybe oh. Jalen Hurts, but probably Mahomes. Um, How much so money it's, it's did you lose by the Bengals? So by it's, the a way. W, it's a it's a WWE stuff. Vince McMahon couldn't write the script. Oh yeah. How much did you lose betting on the Bengals? No, I didn't bet. Okay. I didn't bet anything. No, just it's just but, my personal pride and my prognostication. Um, but can you this, imagine watching football in the fall and not seeing Tom Brady? Yeah, twenty three seasons. It. No, yeah, I don't want to imagine it. I can imagine. I can imagine. I, it. I can imagine this year where I barely saw Tom Brady play. <laughs> I, I can't live in a world where Tom Brady. No, I don't want to live in a playing world. mediocre football for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He's a legendary quarterback. He's like 
now yeah. it's over. Yeah, it happens. It happens. Oh, it happens so sad twice sometimes. You know, who knows? This may he may turn into like a Floyd Mayweather, or he retires and unretires a dozen times before he's fifty-five, and we're all done with him. But um, the um, more interesting, since we're let's talk about somebody who's actually active. That's his ex-wife, Giselle Bundchen. You know, I, I read page six because you know how I like celebrity gossip. You live for it, Dan. Yeah. Um, the uh, uh, former Mrs. Tom Brady will pose for Vanity Fair cover and talk in depth about her divorce Ooh. for the first time. That's coming up. A Vanity Fair spokesman t- said the publication does not comment on editorial rumors. No, of course not. I want to jeopardize Vanity Fair's journalistic integrity. Um, but uh, one wag told Page Six, I could see this as a cover to celebrate uh, Earth Month in April because that's a subject close to Giselle's heart. <laughs> You know, you know, I could because you know, you know what the Earth is like really close to Giselle's heart. The like, Earth, oh my God, it's just the closest <laughs> thing. Oh, oh, but I got to tell you something. Um, so so she supposedly did this uh, photo shoot at her at their estate or her estate now in Florida. Uh, so she's back modeling and stuff. But I, I got to tell you, now that I've seen the pictures of her without makeup on, right, holy go cow! Good God. You Tom. cannot unsee that, can you? Tom Brady, victorious. You get out. Well, that was, I mean, she was grieving. She was grieving. They just gotten divorced, so she went to Costa Rica with her kids, and they caught her without, you know, Ugh. on the go with her kids and without makeup on. And, yeah, it wasn't a good look, all right? Oof. Yeah. Um, speaking of uh, quarterbacks, including, so, so now we're done with Tom Brady. He's retired. Okay. He's gone. Okay, bye. Um, uh, Pat Mahomes the quarterback of the moment now, and sort of of the last six years of the moment. But Mahomes, his dad went on the score. Yeah. And I, I, I had never heard this before. I mean, I know the Bears passed on drafting Mahomes, you know, so they could trade up to number two to pick Mitch Trubisky. Mitch Trubisky. Great yeah, North office. Carolina, they have some great quarterbacks out of that but program. Mahomes' dad said that um, the Bears informed Pat Mahomes, he would be selected by the team, the number three pick overall. What? The, the Bears told him that we're taking you number three, and Mahomes' dad said Pat Mahomes was a little bit upset about it when they moved up and took Trubisky number two. He's upset about it. <laughs> He's upset about being taken by the Chiefs instead of the Bears. You dodged a bullet, buddy. You're welcome. Just if somebody finally benefited from the incompetence of the Bears' front office, it was Pat Mahomes. But I hadn't heard that before. Me neither. Mm. And then they, they skipped on Deshaun Watson, too. Well, I yes, right. I understand. Yeah. But but Deshaun Watson's had his ups and downs right, and problems. True. But Pat Mahomes is like a generational quarterback. So, right. But, you know, I'm sure it'll work out somehow, some way Poor when decision. they get to Arlington Heights. Uh, all right. One other uh, sports and politics. Uh, oh, two others, actually. Um, one is, a uh, since we're doing scripting here, one... Uh, white hat, the other black hat, uh, white hat, Victoria Azarenka. She is a professional tennis player and she's a uh, Belarusian. And there were some like pro Russian demonstrations during the Australian open mm-hmm. last week, apparently. And so after her match uh, where she lost the sports press corps, who are the only people that take themselves seriously, and they want to sound intelligent. 
because they want to be part of the DC press corps and be taken seriously by someone other than themselves. And so they ask questions about like geopolitical matters like the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And good for this young lady for this pushback. I, I don't know what you guys want us to do about it, like talk about it. I, 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 don't, I don't know what's, what's the goal here that um, is continuously brought up and uh, these incidents that, in my opinion, have nothing to do with players, but somehow you keep dragging players into it. So what's the goal here? Oh, my God. I think you should ask yourself that question, not me. Does it, just, sorry, just to clarify on that, though. Does it frustrate you that, um, you know, particularly last night, for example, there was a clear sort of pro-Russian demonstration happening within the grounds of the tournament, that these people are coming and using the Australian Open as a platform for this, these kind of demonstrations? Does that frustrate you? It's a follow-up, but the same question, basically. Right, same question. She's just exasperated. <sighs> as you hear. Let's talk tennis. I, the whatever the answer I'm going to give it to you right now, it's going to be turned whichever way you want to turn mm. it to. So does it bother me? What bothers me is... Um, question. There's real things that's going on in the world. And I don't know, are you a politician? Are you? Are you covering politics? Yes, and I'm a sports, and I'm an athlete. And you're asking me about things that maybe somebody says are in my control, but I don't believe that. So I don't know what you want me to answer. And if it's a provocative question, then... You know, you can you can spin the story however you want. Oh. Miss Azarenko, isn't it true that you are a Putin asset? <laughs> what about Russian collusion? <laughs> Miss Azarenka, answer the question. Miss Azarenka has now uh, been this is been subpoenaed by Adam Schiff, oh. even though he's no longer House Intel Committee <laughs> chairman, to appear before their committee. I also think she's running a bunch of Russian chatbots trying to influence the 2024 election. She's a threat to our democracy. She needs to be put on lists. There needs to be sanctions issued against her for not answering the question. Because if you don't answer the question, if you don't agree with us and cheer with us loudly, then you are an insurrectionist, a threat to our democracy, a Russian asset. Good for her. Stay in your, I mean, she's basically saying, look, I'm going to stay in my lane. Why don't you stay in yours? You I love dope. when she asked her, are you a p- political reporter? Yeah. No. Yeah. No. Mm-hmm. No. It's like you can almost hear the journalist say, no, I'm a sports journalist. Yeah, I'm only sports. I wish I was. <laughs> I wish I was somebody serious. Not that mm-hmm. most political reporters are either. Uh, so, all right. So there's your white hat, Victoria Azarenka. That was pretty good. Your black hat, um, even though I love his game, Steph Curry, you know, oh, Golden boy. State Warriors. Uh, Steph Curry, uh, not in his backyard. Mm-mm. He's big uh, Biden supporter. Big, uh, you know, yeah, video, jerk. yeah, video on Instagram of him and his wife supporting him, and yeah, yeah, he's a big knee jerk dem, like you know, most of these athletes. He's sort of a less obnoxious version of LeBron. Um, 
he is uh, opposing. He lives in Atherton, California, which is the richest zip code in America. Understandably, he's one of the highest paid athletes in the world, and he should be. He's a great, great player, Hall of Fame basketball player. And frankly, he's changed the game uh, with the, his range um, and his shot-making ability. But I digress. Opposing a low-income housing development near his $30 million mansion. We hesitate to add uh, to the not-in-our-backyard rhetoric, but we wanted to send a note before today's meeting. Safety and privacy for us and our kids continues to be our top priority and one of the biggest reasons we chose Atherton as home a letter that Steph and his wife, Aisha, wrote to the village there. Uh, yeah, so um, they want um, the local government to build fencing and shrubbery right. around their home to protect the family from... Line of uh, sight. Yeah, They don't want people of, peeking in their backyard. Line yeah. of sight, excuse me. Yeah, right. But and it's they, a, it's... They, they oppose the development, though, overall, just yeah. like all these... Oh, quote unquote, affordable housing advocates that live on the North Shore and operate as slumlords uh, with their West Side and South Side developments for so many years. It's just rules for me, but not for the. It just reminded me of when Rosecrans came in our neighborhood. All oh, the liberals were so worried. Oh, and, and and they all throw their kids in front of the bus. Oh, it's for the children. We don't want our kids to see the drug addicts coming out. And and here it's it's for our children. We we want to protect our children. No, they want to protect their property. They don't want just say it. You don't want that in your backyard. Just own it. But instead, they got to dance around and, you know. We hate to be that person, but we're <gasps> going to be that person. Yeah. It's it's fun. It's fun when you have Woke. to be confronted with the reality of your views. And then you have to say, oh, you got me. I'm a hypocrite. But let me tell you something. I'm going to be a hypocrite because now my interests are at stake. Robbie Starbuck tweeted, Turns out Steph Curry is only a Democrat until you try to build low-income houses in his backyard. Yeah, like pretty much every Democrat uh, in a wealthy area. Kevin in Austin, Texas. Yeah, did you know that Tom Brady once said, I think it was in 2004, ESPN Magazine, that he, his greatest ambition or craziest ambition would be to a U.S. senator? Is he going to get involved in politics? Uh, I don't know. I haven't heard that. Thanks for the call, Kevin. Directing eighty for Brady. He's in that. He's acting. Well, he's he's not going to go very far in acting. I'll tell you that. Him and Gronk are going to be great. His acting career will last uh, shorter than those octogenarians in that film. (laughs) I mean, the rest of their acting careers. You know what I'm saying? I'm trying to say they're going to die soon. Oh damn! I don't know if I was making it clear. Jane Fonda Um, looks like she's 22 years old. I think she might have had some work done because <laughs> yeah. she's in her 80s. Now, I'm, yeah. that's not uh, just Botox, okay? That's a little something more. Maybe terrible. strings or something. I don't know. Uh, Brady Brady running in Florida. Um, you know, there's a – it'd be interesting. I don't see where he comes down. I, I, I know he was, you know, sort of a Trump supporter, so it'd be yeah. interesting to see if he gets in politics. But, you know, people say stuff. You know, it goes the other way, too. Condi Rice thought she was going to be NFL commissioner. No. 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 Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answers. The more you listen, the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning Answer on AM 560. The Answer. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM 560. The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. I like this uh, question posed by New York Post columnist Carol Markowitz. Would you trade your family for money? 
Which one of your kids would you swap for certain wealth? So, uh, which one of your kids would you swap for wealth? Neither of them. Yeah, okay. I'll be poor and all right, be with my kids. I'm let's fine. be honest. No, okay. I am being honest. All right, all right, all right. You, you know, me? I'm going to up the ante. I'm going to up the ante. Right, I'm not. That's that's too easy. You get off the hook with giving the, of course, I would never trade a, my one of my kids for certain wealth. Okay. Well, let's Sophie's choice it up a little bit. Oh, boy. What if you had to choose one of your kids for certain wealth? Who goes? <sighs> Who goes for the cash? You had to choose. I can't. I'm not going to say it on the radio. <laughs> There is an answer, though. Well, you think now about the better now, good or mid, like, who's yeah, going to contribute Pey- more to society. Now Peyton oh, and Eli. Now Peyton and Eli are going to hear this. They're going to be wondering. Really nice, Mom. Thanks, Mom. It's I know it's me. They're both going to be saying, I know it's me. I know it's me. Now, look at the chaos you've created in your household now. Mm. For more on the importance of this question, please to be joined by Carol Markowitz. She's a columnist for the New York Post, contributing editor to Spectator. She's also a Florida resident by way of... Manhattan, COVID. by way of Manhattan, thanks to de Blasio <laughs> and Cuomo and at all. And uh, she's got a new book that she co-authored with Bethany Mandel, Stolen Youth, How Radicals Are Erasing Innocence and Indoctrinating a Generation. It's available March 7th, but I think you can pre-order it now as the, is customary. Uh, Carol, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Really, well, Peyton and Eli? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Peyton and Eli. Well, they're <laughs> that's sort of their my, radio names. Yeah, my my hand. Ah, on I them. see, I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, look at the the uh, chaos you've created in the Jacobson household, uh, Carol. Um, <laughs> wh- why are you putting these questions to your readers? <laughs> well, because a new Pew study showed that parents would prefer that their children prioritize financial independence instead of family and children. And actually by quite a lot, 88% of parents said it was extremely or very important for their children to be financially independent. 88% um, also said that they want their kids to have a job that they enjoy. But only 21% of parents said it was extremely or very important for their child to get married. And only 20% even care that they're getting grandchildren, which to me is bananas. Well, it's just, I mean, the the whole, like, prior to financial dependence, just like, I, I get married, don't get married at some point, just get out of the house. I just want you <laughs> out of the house. That's understandable. It is understandable. But, look, the thing is that the, the gap here is so big that it's it's not about, like, oh, you know, you can do both and et cetera. It's really, they're they're pushing one thing over another. And it's really bizarre because it's you know, civilization ending, not to encourage your kids to have kids. And it makes no sense to me as a parent because all I want is grandchildren. Right. And hopefully you'll get that someday. How is the global warming play into all of this? So it does because these kids are being terrified at school that the world is going to end, that there's too many of us, that it's their fault that that climate continues to change. Uh, We actually have a chapter of this about this in our book, Stolen Youth, because the anxiety rates among kids is so high right now, partially because they all believe that the world is going to end soon. And if you're raised with that idea that, you know, everything that you're doing is contributing to this climate changing and that the world can end at any moment, we're all at the brink of catastrophe. Yeah, you might not want to be having children into that. Um, but, you know, what I say to my own kids is, pay attention to the people pushing this message. Yeah, they're saying this, but are they acting as if the world is ending? Are they still on private planes and on their yachts and, you know, in their gigantic homes with three to 10 times the size of the the footprint that other homes have? They are. 
So until you see them acting like rats on a sinking ship, don't worry about it. Like I think of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. They're only having two kids for the environment. And right. while they're taking their private jets everywhere that they need yeah, to go. Exactly. Yeah. Have a third a, kid, guys. It's okay. There's a new test, too. I know it's always the, are you flying private or flying at all? But I, I like this test. Uh, do you take anesthesia when you go under the knife? Um, mm. beca- because this uh, comes to us from uh, uh, an anesthesia, uh, anesthesiast uh, from Detroit's Henry Ford Health, who uh, made the suggestion at a recent uh, conference of the American Society of Anesthesiologists. That's always a good time. Uh, global warming is affecting our daily life more and more. The reduction of greenhouse gas emissions has become crucial. No matter how small each effect is, as anesthesiologists, we can contribute significantly to this cause by making little changes in our daily practice, such as lowering the flow of anesthetic gas with, uh, <laughs> and so forth. So, you know, you know, your pain is the planet's gain, uh, is the new mantra of the anesthesiologists of the country. Too. Right. I, I, right. part, of this, part of this seems to me tell the kids who, like, if somebody is not making sense, like, you have to have the common sense and the critical thinking skills to listen to somebody's, like, argument, diagnosis of a problem, response to that problem, and say, does that make sense? Right, exactly. And I know I, I, the, last week I wrote about how I'm having eye surgery in April, and I will be getting anesthesia. Uh, sorry about the planet, you guys. Anesthesia is yeah. happening. Uh-oh. Yeah, understand. Yeah, You're not understand. doing your part. You're not mm-hmm. stepping up, as they say. <laughs> well, and the, the whole uh, importance of marriage and uh, progeny and all that. Um, mm-hmm. So this is, this is happening in real time. It's been yeah. predicted by, for a long time because people right. can read actuarial tables. But in Japan... Right now, you have the, 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 the leader of the Japanese uh, government saying we have an existential crisis here. If we don't mm-hmm. increase our birth rate post-haste, then we're going to cease to exist in a people in a handful of generations. Yeah. So I've written about um, you know, the birth rate many times in the past. And like part of it to me is that we really glamorized your, your life without children. The idea also that the fact is, as I say in this column, that usually you make more money when you're married. Married people make more money and they actually save more money, as I say in the piece, despite having expensive little people who often live with them. Um, and so your the stability of marriage, the stability of family actually increases your earnings and increases your savings because I mean, the pooling of resources, all of it is, is very good for you economically. So we've made it so people consider the single life when you're making the money, but that makes no sense with the data. And I, I think that's another message that I send to my own kids is it's not an either either or. My own career only took off after I had my first child. Like it, anything is possible, but it's particularly possible in the security and stability of family. Well, I just, you know. In this day and age where even a Tom Brady and a Giselle Bunchen can't make it, I mean, what hope is for the rest of, for the rest of us? That's, I guess, the thing. Um, all right, one other topic uh, that you covered, too, and this mm-hmm. is part, part of, uh, I'm sure, part of your stolen youth book, which is the, the left's general war on merit starting at earlier and earlier grades where we yeah. don't want to see anybody getting too far ahead of anybody else in anything. Yeah. So the war on merit, it's it's harder to get parents um, and non-parents, just society in general, to care about this war on merit. Because, look, you know, when you have like gender ideology pushed to your kids, when you have CRT pushed to your kids, 
you're thinking these are the priorities and I have to stop these. And this is being pushed to all, you know, all kids and in, in various schools across the country. But merit is only targeting a few, right? You can only, only a few people are, are qualifying for, for example, the national merit scholarships. So it's hard to get people to care about something that doesn't impact them. But what I'm telling people is that they need to see this war on merit as part of the larger leftist indoctrination in our schools. They're trying to make everybody equal through not letting anybody be better, through not letting anybody, uh, you know, have rigor in their schools and qualify for these merit scholarships, which is going to hurt us societally, even if it doesn't affect your child specifically. So people need to see that it's, it's a very communist philosophy that we're all going to have equal outcomes that will never happen ever. And we need to fight this. Well, and it's also um, it, it speaks to a certain something that you try to inculcate into your kids and maybe some adults, this notion of fairness, right? Is this is yeah. people being treated fairly? And when you have, for example, Ivy League schools like Harvard cooking the books against Asian American applicants oh because they want right. to reduce the number of qualified Asian applicants that they would have to admit based on their standards. I mean, you know, what does that say about the sort of their overall attitude toward merit and the and the legitimacy of it? That's right. Well, and the, the story that I highlight in this column is a giant, which should be to me, a giant, giant controversy and, and really just a, a huge scandal that happened in Virginia where Schools kept the information from white and Asian parents that their kids had qualified for national merit scholarships. Right. These kids lost out on the ability to have scholarships. They lost out on the ability to note this on their college applications. We all know how competitive colleges are now. And these kids were put at a disadvantage because of their race. I, I, it's mind-boggling to me that Republicans across the country are not talking about this. This is an 80-20, 90-10 issue. This is not 50-50. This is, there's very few people in the country who think white and Asian kids should be punished because of the race that they are and think that they should have scholarships snatched away from them because of their race. Yeah. Republicans should get on this. This is a winning issue. I, I don't know how else to say it. Get on this. Well, did they, anybody lose their jobs over that? Nobody. That's significant. Zero people. I've yeah. never heard that So before. Glenn Youngkin, right. So Governor Glenn Youngkin um, is, of Virginia is working on a bill to enforce that they must tell the families that kids have qualified for this kind of merit scholarship or for this merit accommodation. Um, but that's a good start. I don't think that's the end of this. I, if this happened in Florida, I could see my governor, Ron DeSantis, tearing the place apart because that's what's deserved here. Everybody should be fired who was involved in this. Imagine your kid didn't get the scholarship oh. because they were the wrong race. I'd be out of my right. mind. Right. Um, well, now, you know, the, the one thing about the war on merit, though, there's some things that I'm a little bit uh, of two minds on. For example, uh, some of these companies that are now moving to uh, strip uh, could, when you submit your resume or CV, that you mm -hmm. just include the degree, you don't include the school from which you got the degree, <laughs> so that there's no like status benefit that's conferred right. to somebody who went to an Ivy League school or prestigious small liberal arts school. So I, yeah. and it, you know, in a sense, I mean, because everybody's so status driven and that's what this is all right. about, rather, in a sense, I sort of like it that it's the yeah, snake like eating its own tail. <laughs> but, but, but I mean, that's another ex illustration of it as well. 
Yeah, sure. Strip Harvard and Yale and the rest of their, you know, prestige. That that's fine with me. Also, as somebody who went to like a non-prestigious college, that would have been great. But we know it's wrong, right? We know it's wrong. We know that hiding information about how well you did in your life or how much you succeeded is not going to help anybody else. It is not going to rise anybody else. It it just isn't. And I also, I love the idea that the people who went to Harvard don't have an in at the company anyway. Like, they're not going to be able to, like, right, you know, right. call their dad yeah, and, right. and have them get them the interview. I mean, they are. It's going to be okay for them. Um, now, on your book, uh, Stolen Youth, uh, um, just a question. Uh, was it copy mm-hmm. edited at all? Did you have it a was, copy? yes. Okay, well, I Go mean, this is, this is a little bit uncomfortable, but you may may want to put a, a warning label on it because, as I understand it from uh, Helen Rubenstein over at uh, Literary Hub, copy editing is uh, white supremacist. Racist. It's white su- <laughs> yeah, it it's, is? It is. It's white supremacist, yeah. Oh. Um, I, they, I hadn't heard that, but I, it's, it's, you know, obviously it's racist. Everything is racist. Well, um, I mean, it's just uh, this Should is this is this her this is her this is her view. Um, I mean, uh, this is she writes at Literary Hub. I, I need say no more. Uh, the the copyers' valuation as a form of prestige capital is deeply ingrained, so much so, and so unquestionably that it retains socially acceptable. It remains socially acceptable to call oneself a grammar snob, even a grammar Nazi. The status afforded <laughs> these this these trivia is indicative of what they represent: either belonging to the culture of the powerful or compliance with it as determined by its appointed disciplinarians. Uh, Carol, I mean, I just don't want you yeah. to be seen as thrown in with the grammar Nazis. You know Thank I mean? you. I, I really appreciate that. But what's extra funny to me here is that they're clearly targeting other people on the left. For one thing, everybody on the right is going to be like, I don't care what you're saying. I'm going to do it. You know, I'm going to I'm going to write correct sentences anyway. But second of all, in your entire life, when you're like someone's like, Dan, how are you doing? And you're like, I'm doing good. And that person says, well, Dan, you know, you're doing well. Um, who is that? That's always a liberal. <laughs> like, that's never a conservative. A conservative is never like, actually, actually, you mean well. Right. So they're only targeting their own people. Let this circular firing squad go on. It's fine. Very good. Carol Markowitz, columnist for The New York Post, contributing editor at The Thank Spectator. You. The new book, co-authored with Bethany Mandel, Stolen Youth, How Radicals Are Erasing Innocence and Indoctrinating a Generation. Pick it up. Thanks for joining us, Carol. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you. Good luck with the book. And she joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. There's only one radio show in Chicago talking about today's biggest stories and telling you what they really mean. That show is this one. Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.